1: Today is Wednesday, July 17th, and you're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today, and I'm with my co-host, our editor-in-chief, Mark Alley. Mark, I know that you missed me last week.
2: I desperately missed you.
1: (laughs) Just glad that you admit it.
2: Technically, during the show, creating questions, all the work you do all the time. I'm thinking that woman is not paid enough. Wow.
1: Well, thankfully, I know who can change that.
2: Uh, Yeah. Let's see. That would be our publisher. Uh, All right.
1: Well, who is joining us today?
2: Joining us today is Warren Bird. He's a widely recognized expert in megachurches, multi-site churches, large church compensation, and most pertinent today, high visibility pastoral succession. He serves as vice president of research and equipping for the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability, better known as ECFA among us. He is also senior fellow at Leadership Network, and he's an award-winning author or co-author of more than 30 books, including Hero Maker with Dave Ferguson, How to Break Church Growth Barriers with Carl George, and with William Vanderblomen, next pastoral succession that works.
3: Hey Warren. Hey, wow. This sounds uh, like something good needs to come out of all those accolades.
2: Exactly. You're you're under pressure now to say something really wise.
3: All right.
1: <laughs> I mean, uh, widely uh, yeah. recognized as one of the nation's leading researchers. Yes, there I would go. say so.
3: Okay, and my favorite Bible verse is, even a fool is counted wise when he holds his tongue.
2: There you go. <laughs> so there'll be long silences after our questions. Okay.
3: We'll, we'll give it a shot.
1: Well, it's great to have you here, Warren, and clearly there's a bunch of different topics that we could be chatting with you about today, but I'm going to explain to our audience what exactly it is that we want to discuss at length. It claims 100,000 members. It owns and operates an evangelical television channel, two schools, the first and only private prison in Korea, and hospitals in Korea and Ethiopia. Forty years ago, Myungseong Presbyterian Church in Korea was founded by Kim sin Wan. It's now pastor emeritus. But the church is currently involved in a crisis over who will be its next pastor right now. Kim Sun Wan gave his senior pastor position to his son in 2017, but the Presbyterian denomination to which the church belongs says that it violated part of the denomination's constitution, which prohibits the transference of pastor or elder positions to family members. According to CT's reporting on this particular story, quote, Defenders argue that Kim Hana was elected in accordance with Myung-sun's laws and the denomination that Kim Sun Wan once headed should not meddle in the megachurch's affairs. Critics argue that the denomination's flagship church is flouting the corporate laws it must heed, end quote. So this week on Quick to Listen, in the wake of this controversy, we wanted to discuss whether it's churches or ministries, should parents bequeath their leadership titles to their children? Warren is going to tell us how he really feels on that subject, I hope. But Mark, I did want to just chat with you about and get a gut check about how we thought about this particular occurrence that happens in our movement kind of frequently actually.
3: Well,
2: right now it happens because a number of our larger and more prominent churches were founded by baby boomers back in the day or were helped to grow to their size by baby boomers and all those baby boomers are getting to retirement age. Some are passing away. So the question is always, what's going to happen to their churches or their organizations once that happens? How do how do you how do you ensure a good succession so that the organization or the church doesn't shrink into oblivion? How do you do it that way that maintains continuity, which is very important for any organization, and yet at the same time is open to new ideas for a new generation. Those are all questions that are raised every time something like this happens. So I, was, I felt for the Korean church and, and both in terms of what their desire was, obviously the desire was undoubtedly for continuity in a lot of respects, but also I was a former Presbyterian. I know you, you can't get away with that. <laughs> you can't do that in the Presbyterian system. So I would say as a general policy It's probably good to discourage it, but given my knowledge of church history, I would say there are occasions when that's a very good decision for a church to make. So how you generally discourage that while making exceptions, I don't know how you'd write the laws up to do that, but I'm not intrinsically against it. It just, it all depends on the qualities of the person and the needs of the congregation.
1: Maybe it's just because I am the true American who doesn't believe in monarchy.
2: (laughs) Which, and that's been your problem the whole time you've worked here.
1: Okay, wow. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, clearly we also have had multiple instances of maybe not secession, but obviously like two presidents during my lifetime have come from the same family. So I can't really say that this never happens in America at all. But it just it always seems strange why someone, by being someone's kid, somehow you would be the most qualified person to be that way. I guess if they just said, I want my son or daughter to lead this organization because I love them the most and I want, and I, yeah, Yeah. I love them the most. Then I would say like, okay, that sounds like a great or an understandable reason why this person would be doing it. But sometimes they try to disguise it, in my opinion, as like they are literally the most qualified and that's where I start to raise my eyebrows, I guess. Take
2: an analogy from sports, which you are familiar with, a lot of the major league baseball players mm-hmm. a lot of NFL players their mm-hmm. their children grow up to be great athletes as well sometimes better than their parents part of that's due to genes part of that's due to pa- parental training probably mm-hmm. and the discipline s- mm-hmm. still and no one would say that the son of a famous athlete got drafted in the NFL because simply because of the name but if there is some sort of familia even genetic mm-hmm. thing you pass along that makes you qualified to play the NFL it strikes me that there may be that in the business or the church world as well.
1: Yes, I, I. well, you said they would not just for the name. However, the name is not irrelevant. The name it is gets, not irrelevant. Especially because uh, right now there's actually a, quite a few Major League Baseball players who were named after their fathers. So they had literally yeah. <laughs> have the same name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, yeah. their parents were like much beloved in that community. And somehow that belovedness is then transferred onto yeah. their kid. Warren, we do want to hear your opinion, but I first want to just like step away really quickly and say, what is the case in general for churches for, I don't know what to call it, hereditary ascension, secession?
2: Hereditary ascension or nepotism would
3: be the negative well, term. Oh, Okay. Well, if you're going to go the nepotism route, you know where that word came from. Nepotism came from a church context, nephewism, and it was where certain priests had certain nephews that they wanted to position well in the responsibilities and hierarchy of the church and of course the question is did they really father the child that's where nepotism as a pejorative critical term comes from church world now your article which was an excellent article in Christianity today is the first major article i've seen that that uses the word hereditary as as in it's a right, you know. It's an expectation. It's you know this is the way things are to be. Almost, it it had the the sense to me of uh, back in the Old Testament with with the kingly progression. Well, of course, my son is going to succeed me. It's just you know which son who should be the next successor. But the expectation that of course it will be the king's child to follow. That's what I thought the article was raising, not. Does it happen that a child follows a parent in leadership, but should it happen? And what demands and rights should be accompanying that a parent can decide? I want to bequeath this to my child.
1: I'm I'm sure you've seen cases where people pass ministries and churches down to their children. What are the benefits or what are the real strengths of them doing that?
3: There are many. you know the the kid has has grown up in the home, has seen the ministry, highs and lows, has had the inner track on how the ministry is developing, has has been a student, if you will. I mean, Joel Olstein sat like seventeen or so years. He sat behind the camera, watched his dad, edited his dad, picked the best of his dad. And well, if anyone knew the church and the, and the especially the preaching point, uh, better. Who did? Now, the next question is, does Joel, in this case, have the gift and the, and the calling from God to follow? And all that came to a head in the final uh, weeks and months of his father's life. But in many situations, like Church on the Way, Willie George, he started that ministry in Oklahoma and recently handed it off to his son as his successor. Why your son? And he said, because I sent my son loved the church more than any other possible candidate. So in the best of possible worlds,
1: it's a win. So we just talked about, or Mark just mentioned the fact that many denominations actually have rules about this type of stuff. One, can you talk a little bit about what those rules generally are? And two, why those rules are put into place?
3: Almost all church rules are put into place because of an abuse somewhere along the line. And you can imagine the maneuvering of saying my child, who in my view is the perfect, you know, you can search the whole country, but no one can do it better than my child. And that's hard for parents to admit. I I remember watching a child who was in his late teens kind of bumble all over the platform of where his father was preaching. And, And I remarked to a friend, I said, you know, do you see what's happening? This this, this is just a, almost comical. And the friend looked at me and said, obviously, that is not your son. Uh, <laughs> and this pastor sees everything the kid as, is doing as, hey, I'm giving him a platform to grow. So rules were made because of abuses. And many denominations, especially the, the Korean ones, because they were kind of like the first wave of megachurches. And so now They've had the issue of several high-visibility handoffs that didn't go so well. And to make things worse, you tend to have a backhanded, okay, well, so he won't take the pulpit. He can run the school and the publishing empire and all these other things, which, in effect, is making that kid the senior pastor with all the choices. Or, in the case of this excellent article in Christianity Today, it was kind of a backhanded way of, okay, well, then we'll plant a church and I'll put my son there. Oh, well, then the church will merge with our church. Oh, well, then I'll step down. Oh, well, then he'll become the senior pastor. I'm grossly oversimplifying it, but it wasn't done in a way that was within the rubric of the rules of that denomination.
2: Yeah, they also have similar rules, like in the Presbyterian Church that I was a part of. Even if you're on staff and as an associate or assistant pastor, you would not be permitted to even put your name in for nomination for the pastor to that church.
3: Correct, and carried even further. Many interim pastors, uh, part of the rules are, if you're going to be an interim here, you can't be considered. The logic being, we want you to put your whole heart into interiming, not into positioning yourself to try to be the next senior pastor here and skewing up our otherwise good process.
2: And I think the intent, again, is, we want to have an objective and fair process where the very best candidate out there in the world can become our next pastor. Well, sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't, obviously. Yeah.
1: How popular is it for pastors to hand their congregations down to their children, especially like just in, in, in your lifetime in the churches that you've worked with? How often has this happened?
3: Well, let's just rattle a few high visibility churches. I already mentioned Joel Olstein, handed from his father, John, Judah Smith. In Seattle, his father Wendell died, and it came to him. Jonathan Stockstill is actually the third generation. Grandpa founded the church, dad took it, and then Jonathan took it. Jonathan Falwell followed his dad, Jerry Falwell, at Thomas Road. Rudolph McKissick followed his dad, Rudolph McKissick Sr. And we could go around just with well-known churches. In more family-based churches of typically a much smaller size, it happens, I think, even more that it's in the family. This is kind of the family enterprise. This is, frankly, the family income. Why not cultivate one of my children to follow? And by the way, I mentioned all boys in the last one. There is church where the pastor handed to his Ira Hilliard at New Light, followed to their daughter, Keisha.
2: It is interesting to note also in another not small organization, the Billy Graham Association, that eventually that ended up in the hands of Franklin Graham. But in actual, in terms of preaching gifts or children who one could see the father in them, and Graham Lotz was definitely the best preacher the Graham family produced. She was the logical successor to Billy Graham to continue his ministry in a lot of ways. And I'm sure the reasons she didn't move in that direction are complex. But it is interesting that it ended up in Franklin's hands, who, I don't think it's a it's a secret. He does not display his father's gift for tact and ironicism, so it's kind of an odd succession in that regard.
3: So some successions work magnificently, and other successions change courses and may or may not work magnificently. I remember talking to Fred Price, who succeeded his dad, Frederick Casey Price, and he said, you know, on week one, I I preached. From my iPad, as opposed to a leather Bible, and got all kinds of fly. I look like my dad. I I speak like my dad, but the way I do things are inherently going to be different, and that often takes the ministry in a different direction for a new generation, sometimes good, sometimes bad.
1: Before we return to the American context completely, I actually want to just talk about this situation in Korea a little bit more. Can you tell us a little bit more or can you tell us in more detail some of the dynamics going on in the mega church world there with regards to secession?
3: Korea, as I mentioned, had the first wave of megachurches and long-term pastors. And so you have the issue of how do you do succession? The highest visibility, largest attendance church in the United States, Yoida Church, Cho did not hand the church or you know even the way we say it handing the church implies that it's ultimately their decision which in some traditions it is some it isn't almost every tradition even appointment systems they do go to the senior pastor and say hey you know you've served here for a lot of years help us know who you think could handle this well the actual successor in yoido which was the largest church was a pastor who had, yes, served on staff at Yoido many years before, but he was pastoring America, didn't even know he was being considered as a candidate until the, the final step. While some churches, most prominently that one in Korea, have departed from the family, although Yoido then got in a lot of trouble because they hung on to the newspaper and the educational institution and other moneyed sections of the church, so to speak, and kept those in the family, and that did create conflict. But that said, pastor-to-pastor handoffs had happened in a lot of churches there. Many denominations felt like, wait a minute, this is, this is becoming a foregone conclusion. We need to set up procedures that the handoff is more appropriately vetted among other candidates.
1: And have those new systems been effective? Have they been ones that... America has looked to with regards to learning from the Korean leaders and Christians. That's actually
3: two questions. One has it been effective? Well, <laughs> the reason Christianity Today needed to do a major article was at least in one case it it's gone so far south, and the Yoido Church has had its series of articles about uh, succession challenges and family members. But many of the churches, the largest attendance. Methodist church in the world is there in Korea. And the handoff there from father to son has been flawless. It's worked very well. And of course, what makes headline Is there a headline that says five years later, no dip in attendance, people still coming to Christ, (laughs) (laughs) uh, happy with, with success? No,
2: that's a story idea. Make notes of that.
3: (laughs) (laughs) No, what, what makes the news are when things go south. So in the book that uh, William Vanderblumen and I did, Next Pastoral Succession That Works, that you referenced, we worked really hard to find not just fill the book with half of the stories in the book being news grabbers, but half being seamless, smooth successions. They do happen. They just don't make the news.
4: Today's episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by Promise Keepers, the Christian men's ministry that filled stadiums across America is once again calling on men to stand up and be counted. I spoke with Ken Harrison, chairman and CEO of Promise Keepers, about the event. Hey, Ken. Why is it that men are oftentimes, like, for the first time, able to be authentic in an event like that? Man, we live in such a fake society. I mean, uh, there's a desperate need everywhere in our society, but especially in the church for real. Like, dude, just be who you are. There's something about when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of your heart and those walls come down and the little face that we put on um, every day, uh, it just just comes down and you're emptied out of yourself. Guys that are, like, in their late 30s to mid 40s. 40s who went to Promise Keepers with their dad when they were a teenager. They say, man, he was the greatest weekend of my life. That was the first time I ever saw my dad totally authentic and real. He told me he loved me and and I still want to bring my son to an event like that. For a man, it's kind of ugly. You know, um, women are a lot more comfortable crying. And so women can get together and they can cry. And it's a more normal process. When men cry, it's sort of like this ugly cry for somebody because they don't actually know how to cry. You know what I mean? They're just a mess. For more information, go to PromiseKeepers.org.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope and redemption. Written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Remind me about the
2: situation with the Crystal Cathedral and Robert Schuler. My memory says that the son, who I went to school with, was being designated as the successor but without going in without getting too personal there were some there was a break uh, there was a breakaway or a split from them how did that work
3: We did a whole chapter in the book on the Crystal Cathedral and my my practice is always to show whatever I write to someone to say hey did I get it right you know do you want to... The Crystal Cathedral's legacy was the hardest story I've ever had to vet, because depending on which family member, <laughs> you get, oh, no, that's not how it happened. And of course, that's been part of the, the breakup. But all right, Robert H., the founder, built a board that had his five five children or and, and a lot of spouses on not just boards, but in, in the key position. So now we've got each having kind of a siloed vested interest. And then we have the heir Robert A, who was announced, and and Robert H did did a lot of great things. He went all around the country with all these kind of introducing my successor tours, and and most ended with a standing ovation of, you know, and and I'm handing the baton. And and that went well. The problem that occurred, at least according to one interpretation, is that you had family members on the board who didn't feel that. The son's preaching was as strong as dad's, or at least not as the same as dad's, because the son wanted to update the music. The son wanted to have a little more variety in styles. And now you're tinkering with a lot of things that have implications for the television ministry and uh, the book ministry and the visit people making a pilgrimage to Crystal Cathedral and all. So by and large, it ended up the board being against itself, family against family. And Sheila, one of the daughters, took the church, but then ended up, you know, it just unraveled. But bottom line, Robert B. Schuler, third generation, son of Robert A., might have a comeback for us. He is the one who now has the Our Power. He's He started a sh- church called the Shepherd's Grove and just merged it with another church in Irvine because they're running out of space. It's grown to about a thousand so far. You never know where this may go.
2: We may have mentioned him in our pages, but I am aware of him and how he is helping that whole church and that historical legacy have a renewed and even more orthodox face now.
1: I want to kind of go back to the beginning of Christianity. I'm just curious, either one of you guys, I was trying to do some thinking while we were doing this as well. Is Christianity unique in that its founder, a.k.a. Jesus, did not leave an heir?
3: You can make the case throughout the Old Testament, hey, Moses picked Joshua. Joshua was not related to him. And yet you can make the case with different kings or others. Hey, this was my son, my child who succeeded me. So you can find examples of both non-family prominent and family prominent in the Old Testament. Now, coming to the New Testament, Jesus chose, you know, he had his 12, one one of whom didn't pass the course, 11 who led the church. None of them that we know of were his relatives. And yet, you want to argue the other side, his half-brother, James, led the most important church in Jerusalem. Was that Jesus handing him the baton, or was that just he was the most qualified candidate? Jesus clearly put character above bloodline in how he trained his ministers in training, his apostles. But there's no clear statement either way that says don't have family members.
1: We also have Peter, who is seen as the first pope. There there wasn't a ban in the Catholic Church, right, against being, or there wasn't a um, requirement to be celibate until what, a thousand AD around that time period? I mean, were popes handing these things, positions down to their children before that?
2: I don't know that it was required for priests, but I think it was required for anyone who wanted to become a bishop or higher.
1: That you had to be celibate? Yeah. And do you know off the top of your head if any of these popes handed it their positions down to their children?
2: I don't know that for a fact, but my vague memory of medieval history would be yes. Like like Warren said earlier, they were handed on to their nephew but who was really a son. But if our listeners can correct us on that, we will happy to read your letter next week saying, (laughs) you don't know what you're talking
1: about. Yeah, I mean, it definitely seems like there was lots of drama with the children because the one thing that I thought I had read a couple of years ago was just about how some of the celibacy rules were put in place with regards to preventing or making it more challenging for church leaders to have an incentive to bequeath to their family members power, land, money that they had attained as a result of their church leadership.
2: And the other reason was uh, they wanted their priests to be able to work full time for the church uh, not be divided in their loyalties to a family, to business, and to a church. I should say the early church was so small, though, you have to remember that a lot of relationships there, you see them, their brothers, their nephews, their cousins, their whatever. The two most famous theologians of the early church were brothers, Gregory of Nyssa and Basil the Great. They're two most influential men in the history of the church, period. They were brothers. Other examples abound. So the smaller the church is, the more, in a sense, it has to rely on kinship to figure out who's got the talent, the interest, the faith, the devotion to do whatever.
1: Then when the Reformation happened 500 years ago, it puts on the table again, with all apologies to the Orthodox Church. I see them, but for for most of the church out there, it puts the idea of having children and hereditary secession back on the table.
2: In a a lot of ways, yes. Uh huh. I'm trying to think of an example from the Reformation and the post-Reformation era in which that was actually something people wrestled about. And my knowledge is thin enough to say I can't think of a single instance. I do see a lot of instances in the 20th century church. Maybe it happened in the 19th century. Uh, Yeah, I guess it happened in the 19th century. With do you have any recollection of that? Warren is with the famous New York family who he wrote a book on Christian education.
3: That one, the nickel is dropping slowly for me. But let me let me comment on U.S. history that. For so many years, let's take the Jonathan Edwards era, you largely had one pastorate for life. If that was the norm, then you weren't looking to hand off to your kid because they would be way too old. You know, they, 20 years in, they, they need a position. It was the practice of like Jonathan Edwards. How did he do internships? They would have people continually in his house. That would be like ministers in training who would shadow and watch and help and assist. But then they would always be sent off to other congregations. And that was the or or appointed by the appropriate authorities. And that was the milieu of that environment. So I think doing this and then having an associate pastor who's my kid and and slowly handing the baton, that's a very recent thing. It's not necessarily always the, the parents doing. Take, for example, uh, most recent high visibility succession father to son was cross church with Ronnie Floyd and his son, Nick. The Baptist policy does not allow parents to designate who's going to be next, whether family member or not. Nick had been part of the church. He'd been a campus pastor. He would preached enough that it was a natural consideration of the search team and was overwhelmingly acclaimed by the congregation.
2: I should say to point out your observation about the Puritan life pastors having churches for a lifetime. In fact, Jonathan Edwards took over the church, not of his father, but of his grandfather.
3: Well, there you go. So that
2: yeah. just is a kind of a small window into that world of, of how that worked.
1: Warren, you mentioned earlier that it isn't always the case, that it's always just father to son transference. Do you think that we will see more father to daughter or maybe mother to daughter handoffs in the next couple decades?
3: We will. There's You haven't mentioned the husband to wife, which is the first and most logical transition, Many of the largest churches that have had female senior pastors have been widowed. Uh, for example, Billy Joe Dougherty has this terrible brain tumor, dies within just a matter of months, and the board unanimously ask his wife, Sharon, who was very involved with the ministry from day one, to lead the church. She's a capable communicator. She led for about five years, and then as their Son Paul was ready. Actually, when he received the baton, I wrote him and said, You are now the youngest megachurch pastor in the United States, to my knowledge, because he was like 29 years old. That was part of the family process. But many times there's a widow or there's a co pastor title. 99 times out of 100, co pastor does not mean we both have the same gifts, we both have the same responsibilities, and we both do the same things. Probably the most high visibility co-pastorate is Joel and Victoria Osteen, where they they definitely have differing roles, but yet they do use the words co-pastor.
1: Can you say a little bit about like what type of expectations the board or the congregation staff, supporters usually have when a family member is given the title? You mentioned a couple minutes ago about sometimes how when people try to change things, it can feel really disruptive. So is there usually the sense that this is the person that's going to keep the, the legacy, quote unquote, whatever that is alive? Or do they ever come in saying like, oh, I hope this person will change things? Well, let me
3: back into this. First, research wise, the smoothest transitions are if you have an overlap, if it's a known person transferring to a known person, whether family member or not. And if the congregation all elbows each other when they finally hear the announcement of the appointment of the new who's going to be the new lead pastor and says, I knew that was coming. You know, see, I told you, I saw that coming. That's good and that's healthy because they have adjusted slowly and gradually to it. When it's a family member, sometimes you see that coming a lot more because often the family members are more privileged or given perks. And this is the this is a big issue. Is there a glass ceiling in the church if you don't have the family name? You know, can you only go so far if you're not a relative? And if so, then I would say that's an unhealthy environment, because that's saying that that the gifts of God and all are limited to a pecking order where my family gets first dibs. But there are many churches where family and non-family alike are attempted to give equal footing. It's never quite true balance, but at least the statement of you can go as far as God wants to grow your ministry in this church and you don't have to have the family name. Now to your specific question, Morgan, of the staff expectations, you can't outvote a family member. The the blood is thicker than water thing, you know, many times the next the child coming in because they're from a different generation, because they were impacted in different ways, because they have different spiritual gifts, will approach ministry differently, and will be able to quote get away with more changes than a non-family member. But woe to the staff member who tries to create a division and say you're not going to do what you know your dad was doing, you know, in this way, or you're going to end this tradition, aren't you? Now that usually ends up with the staff member needing a new address.
2: <laughs> you know, another, another example is in academia. I know at Wheaton College, they have a, a general rule that you're not allowed to hire relatives into your own department, for example. But there was an exception recently where the the chair of the philosophy department I think he was the head of the search committee or a part on the search committee for a new professor of philosophy in, in, in the medieval studies. Son applied for the job. And so the rule was he had to recruit himself from the search committee, from the, being a, being the department chair. He couldn't be department chair if his son was hired, as long as his son was on staff. They ended up hiring. The feeling was, uh, from what I heard from the scuttlebutt, that his son got a more rigorous grilling than any other candidate would have gotten precisely for this reason. But his son... Adam Wood is a, a talented medieval philosopher. So it was a good decision. As I said, they have a general rule, no, and you've got to kind of jump a couple extra hurdles. And maybe that's the only way to adjudicate this thing in the long run.
1: I think the thing that is challenging in which Warren alluded to is actually for what it's like when you're on the outside looking in of those particular situations. Obviously, there's like the politics of whether that person came in in the first place, but there's also the sense of when certain people are sleeping in the same house at night, it means that they just have far more access to talk to each other about these particular things that are going on, right? If you're on the outside as a staff member, you are going to wonder who is loyal to what in what particular circumstances. Not to get too much into politics right now, but obviously people have noted, you know, Trump's very close relationship with how much his daughter is involved and his son-in-law is involved with that. And I think that that creates a cloud of suspicion at times for people that... You just don't think that that person got there based on merit.
2: That's the ongoing suspicion. Yeah. For any.
1: Yeah. in any, any of these things. Any
2: situation in which someone is hired for reasons out outside of sheer qualification.
1: Yeah. And I told Mark, even before we started recording this, I think I'm actually OK in many of these circumstances. if You just say that you, this person got hired because they were loved more <laughs> than that. It's just it sometimes it, I just am bad at disbelieving that. They say this truly was the most qualified person. I'm I'm just the type of person at the end of the day that is still going to raise an eyebrow.
3: Theologically, I'm always disappointed whenever I hear someone say, oh, yeah, because I was the pastor's kid, I got to do everything and try everything and be inside everything. and And this really helped confirm my call and clarify and all. And I just grieve because I think, why do you have to be the pastor's kid to get more permissions than anyone else? Why? Why wouldn't that be a privilege of the whole body of Christ that, you know, hey, try everything, you know, explore, find your gifts, try, see what God is up to in your life. I'm always a little sorry that that non-family don't have that privilege as well.
1: Warren, which denominations are you most likely to see this or traditions and which ones are you definitely not going to see this in today?
3: Anyone that has the appointment system. For example, United Methodists have bishops and district leaders that that appoint you to different things much less likely than the other extreme being the independent, non-denominational and often charismatic church. oh well, of of course, a measure of success is that i've I've got a ministry for each of my children and spouses and their children.
1: I'm just curious, do you what do you normally advise churches? To do when thinking about succession.
3: Start sooner. The opening line of the book, Next Pastoral Succession That Works, says, every pastor is an interim pastor. And you know, I can start with any audience anywhere and say, I don't know what your role, I don't know you personally, and I don't know what role you play in the church, but I know one thing: unless Jesus comes back, somebody is going to follow you. And all the people that I interviewed about succession, the largest regret that I heard was, I wish I had started sooner. And to that end, ECFA, Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability, has a bunch of governance forums this fall, where succession is going to be one of the topics, and they've got a succession toolkit. If you want to start thinking succession, whether this is church or a Christ-centered nonprofit, just go to ecfa.org slash governanceforums, Take a look at the eight cities uh, being visited, and that will help you. And I, I'll use the analogy of you, you talked about Franklin Graham following his dad. There was a time about 20 years ago where all the major parachurches got together, focused on the family when James Dobson was still in the lead, Billy Graham organization when he was still clearly in the lead, and said, let's talk about succession. And almost nobody had a succession plan. And the research that I've done, both of churches and of parachurch ministries, the amount that have a succession plan. This is this is not wait till retirement. This is what if God should call the leader home today, and they don't have a plan, and that really handicaps the ministry uh, when those inevitable moments happen.
1: Good food for thought. Thank you, Warren, very much for that. For people who have. Opinions on this, please send us an email or I guess corrections too. If we got our early church history wrong, please send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. You can also go on Twitter. We're at CT Podcasts. I want to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by everyone who supports our ministry. Mark and I sometimes talk about the various ways that we have a chance to be ambassadors of that ministry. Yes, right. And I think I recently did that when I went to South Africa a couple.
2: Oh my gosh, days you ago. went to South Africa.
1: You went to South oh Africa. Oh my gosh! Or you, you are Mark,
2: fortunate of all people.
1: I describe it as Christian UN summer camp. Okay. <laughs> which is to say that for people who are not familiar with intervarsity, it is a campus ministry that is exists here in the United States, but it also has dozens of global counterparts, more than 160 actually. And every four years, they all get together in a different place around the world and encourage each other and connect and conduct orders of business. And so I had the chance to go there for our CT Global project that we're working on right now and kind of spread the word about that to people from all over the place.
2: And Morgan was the perfect person for us to send because she has real gifts in terms of Interest in global Christianity, interest in diversity. So I was Speaking really glad. You-
1: Spanish and French, which were the languages of the.
2: Oh, so were home. you able to use them both? Mm-hmm. Oh, great.
1: Got to tell people about CT Global, Language Two and Language Three. So yeah, that was a really great time. And I was really thankful that I was able to do that. For people who want to support our ministry, you can do that by going to morect.com slash podcast, morect.com slash podcast, and we are truly appreciative to everyone who has supported us that way. To wrap, we are going to finish with precious moments, which is when everyone has a chance to share something that has brought them joy recently. Go ahead, Mark.
2: People know I'm writing a series on the elusive presence, which is about figuring out how we can learn to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, giving him our due passion, like a deer panting after water, a thirsty deer panting after water. And I admit in the series that I'm that's that's a difficult thing for me to nurture in my soul. But I, I would have to say this week, there were a couple of times I was able to stop and just look at the world around me and just ask myself, where do I see God's handiwork in this? It's like I was sitting in my patio having breakfast one morning. I think it was Saturday morning, and my wife is just a fa- fabulous gardener, and she has just created this beautiful garden to sit and look at and I looked at a structure I built as part of this patio thing and uh or when I'm driving along and I see a skyline of trees, anyway, for some reason, I think we all go through these periods where we're just completely indifferent to all that, and then there's other these moments like it's like, why don't I notice this all the time? This is incredible. God is really good and i had I had a couple of those moments this week, so that was pretty nice.
1: And people can stay updated with that column by subscribing to your newsletter.
2: That is correct. And it is called The Galley Report, G-A-L-L-I. And you can find it at ChristianityToday.com, The Galley Report. I comment, uh, I link to, and then comment on various articles that I find interesting, entertaining, or encouraging in some way.
3: All right, Warren. I've been trying to share the gospel with our neighbors. And we've had success over the years with some. One, I haven't had a window to share with. And the other morning, I backed up my car to go to the gym, and I backed into my neighbor's car. And I'm it happens. Standing, it happens, <laughs> and I'm standing out there thinking, do I wake up my neighbor to tell him? And along came, comes yet another neighbor that I've been wanting to share the gospel with, and I had the most amazing opportunity to chat. And I thought, oh, Lord, if this bumper-to-bumper evangelism weren't <laughs> so expensive— <laughs> uh, I'd ask you to do it with all the neighborhood. But uh, that was that was one of those strange workings where God, you know, it's like, okay, no matter how much we do the dumb things, God can still use that for good. And when he wants to open an opportunity to talk about Jesus with somebody who's hungry or curious, he will. And that was very helpful.
2: So be looking for the GoFundMe effort called <laughs> Bumper to Bumper by Warren Bird, And be
3: sure to give generously, friends.
1: Warren, how long have you lived in your neighborhood for?
3: 30 years. It's, it's been an exciting time. Uh, we've had Bible studies. We've, we've had just all kinds of different potluck dinners and everything else to try to build those bridges to earn the right to tell people about the most important thing in our lives.
1: I love that you love your neighbors that much and in that way. Can you tell people, I know we mentioned a couple different resources and books that you're a part of, maybe pick one or two that you just want to remind our readers of right now and also where they can find you online.
3: The Governance Forums by ECFA is ecfa.org slash governance forum, and that's for succession and frankly, a lot of other, I mean, succession is a really top board priority for both churches and nonprofits. The book by William Vanderblumen and Warren Byrd Next, Pastoral Succession That Works. And my own blog, uh, if you Google a uh, large church trends blog and my name, you will see that blog or go to ecfa.org slash follow.
1: So my precious moment is a little bit similar to Warren's. We had our block party, our annual block party on my block last week, which I was very happy that it went well. I am my block club president. So all on me. I pressure guess. was on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If it does not go very well. But I have really great neighbors who are also as busy as I am, which is extremely busy. And even though they're busy, they're also very competent. And so I was really encouraged and delighted by how we all came together and worked out this. Lots of people showed up. The weather was perfect. We had enough food. It was just awesome to shut down our street and get people outside and talking to each other. I honestly, whenever that happens, I'm like, why don't we do this more often? Especially because my street is a little bit busy. And so if you don't shut it down, it actually is pretty challenging to go over to the other side of it. But it's really fun when you have a jump house out there and have food and animals and all that good stuff. People can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week thank you everyone for listening to another episode of quick to listen you can find this podcast on spotify you can find it on soundcloud you can find it on apple Podcasts. if you go to apple Podcasts, please take some time to rate and review the show we do really appreciate hearing your feedback during those times you can also send us your feedback at podcast at christianitytoday.com this podcast is produced by myself and cray allred the music is by sweeps and we will see you all next time bye